We're in Numbers chapter 9 tonight. And my, um, my intention, the chapter breaks out into two, um, two parts, uh, 1 through 14, and then in uh, 15 to the end of the chapter 23. So in the first section, we're looking at the business of the Passover. Then in the second sec- section, the Shekinah glory. Um, we're going to look at tonight um, the first section. And in the first section, there's actually two parts of the first section. But my aim is to take, um, to take 1 through 14, and we'll have one sermon on it. And then next week, if the Lord gives us a next week together, we'll look at the business of the glory of God in the tabernacle, which is the, it's depicting the presence of God. Uh, Numbers 9, verse 1, Hear the holy word of our infinitely holy God. Thus the Lord God spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to its statutes, according to all its ordinances. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. They observed the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. But there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, so they could not observe the Passover on that day. They came before Moses and Aaron on that day. These men said to him, Though we are unclean because of a dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moses therefore said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord has commanded you concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. But the man who is clean and not on a journey, and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from among his people, for he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man will bear his sins. If an alien sojourns among you, observes the Passover of the Lord, according to the statute of the Passover, according to its ordinance, so he shall do. You shall have one statute, both for the alien and for the native of the land. God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our Father, which art in heaven. We pray, Lord God, that we would hallow your name in and through your Son, Christ Jesus, our Savior. I ask, O Holy Spirit, for mercy upon me tonight in the proclamation of your word. Mercy upon all of us in the reception of it, that we would see you, Jesus Christ, both slain and high and lifted up. You were the one that was dead, and now you are alive forevermore, our living head. And we love you, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So my practice, which I think is a fairly good practice, taught by a couple of older Christian guys, when I come to a portion of the Bible, whether I'm doing a Bible study or for my own personal edification, or preparing for a sermon, I always look for the main doctrine. The main doctrine of this particular passage, I think, is, um, is, uh, is that of evident. We're clearly dealing with God's strictures or words 
concerning the observance of the Passover feast. And then in this particular passage, I mentioned there are two portions to it. And you'll see this, I think, again, clearly. In verses 1 through 5, you have some general rules concerning the observance of the, the Passover meal. Uh, when you, you shall observe it and so on. And then we look at how you shall observe it, bitter herbs and not breaking a bone of the lamb. And then from 6 to 14, you deal with uh, God's gracious provision for what I would say is an auxiliary um, day of observance uh, for uh, the Passover meal, given a set of circumstances, namely touching a dead a person. And I would argue even de- touching a dead animal would make the person ceremonially unclean. Those are the two parts of the particular uh, passage. One, the observance of the Passover, and then uh, the question about what to do if one is ceremonially uh, unclean. What I like to do in this particular book, it's an Old Testament historical narrative, so I think it's helpful to remind ourselves where we are in the book. I, I don't mean chronologically, I mean thematically. But chronologically, if we're a nine, we've seen, what, in seven and eight, in chapter um Seven, what, we're, what we have looked at was the consecration or the dedication of the sanctuary. So the, the Bible will refer to it as the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. This was the place where God placed his name. You had the Holy of Holies, where the, whole priest would, the high priest would come in on the Day of Atonement and make atonement for God's people. But you could break it down. You could travel with it. This is what God used for the reconciliation of his people, that they would live with him and he would live with them during the 40-year march in the wilderness. And then when they came into the promised land, the tabernacle went away and then it became the temple. Both of those things are typological. They're temporary. Both are pointing forward to the person of the work of Jesus. That's why we read from our secondary standards, though we ultimately don't rest on our secondary standards. We're saying the secondary standard is a summary of the primary standard. So where that principle of the tabernacle and the temple and the furniture and the priesthood and the sacrifices all are pointing to Jesus is the book of Hebrews. And it's clear as a bell. If you read the book of Hebrews, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church and every Sunday the priest would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you were raised Catholic, you remember that. That's before the Eucharist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John one twenty nine. Jesus, Christ's cousin, looking at Jesus, says he's the lamb. He is the Passover lamb. So God, the Holy Spirit, inspired John the Baptist, Paul, I think, who wrote uh, uh, Hebrews, to say that lamb is pointing forward to the lamb of God. And that's what this is teaching. So we have in chapter 7, and notice the logical order, and there's a connection to it. You have the consecration of the tabernacle, and then in chapter 7, the dedication of the consecration of the altar on which you make sacrifice. And then in chapter 8, again, logically connected, you have the consecration or the dedication of the sanctuary workers. So the consecration, the taking of a thing which was common and dedicating it to holy use. That's what consecration means. So so sometimes theologians call this um, definitive sanctification. The Bible and the New Testament particularly will talk about progressive sanctification, which is our becoming uh, inwardly, morally more like Christ, dying to sin, growing in righteousness. That's progressive sanctification. But sometimes the Bible will speak in that word 
definitive sanctification. It looks almost like justification. It's what it just says, definitive, once for all. That's consecration, being taken from profane or common use and dedicated to holy use, only unto the Lord. So the the tent, which essentially was just a common tent, dedicated to the Lord. And this edifice, this, this edifice of altar, dedicated to the Lord. Then you have these Levitical priestly helpers, servants to the servants, servants to the ironical servants, taking from ordinary service. Now they're dedicated to the Lord. So dedicated sanctuary, dedicated sanctuary workers. And we, we, the, the primary function of the priestly class was two things to make sacrifice for sins, and to make intercession for sinners. I understand those are the ironical priests, but the Levitical priests helped the ironical, the Levitical priestly helpers helped the ironical priests in sacrifice primarily. So these Levites, yes, they're toting around a bunch of stuff and carrying a bunch of stuff according to their families. They primarily, exist, primarily existed, and this is, this is what the Passover lamb is teaching, and the Passover lamb is a species of this, of an animal sacrifice, primarily. What does the Bible say? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of what? That's exactly right, the book of Hebrews. And this comes from the mind of God. This is what's being taught. That's what the the Lamb of God teaches. That's what all of the, the bulls and the lambs and the goats ultimately fulfilled in the Lamb of God, Christ, the Passover. That's what it teaches. Without the the wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, but God has made a way. The second person of the Godhead took flesh in order to die. That's Hebrews chapter 10. That's why Christ came. He came to be the substitutionary land. You have the holy sanctuary. You have the holy servants. And now what we've come, as what we've just said with the Passover, is a holy sacrifice. That's what we're looking at. So when we deal with the Passover, we're looking at a holy sacrifice that occurs in everything's important. Dedicated servants, dedicated place, dedicated sacrifice. Uh, all holy and being offered holy. And what I mean by that is prescribed by the Lord. We talked about this morning descriptive and prescriptive. These, this is prescriptive. It has to be this way. You can't deviate from any of it. You can't have Bob, the ordinary Israelite, offering up Uh, any sacrifices in the tabernacle. It would be death to him. God would not accept it. And so this is prescriptive. Exactly as God prescribes, it has to occur this way in order for the sinner to receive reconciliation and be received into the presence of God because God God is a holy God. So this is, when we look at the Passover lamb, this is a sacrifice. The word that the Bible uses is in, and I'll tell you, it's used in four times. I know it in Greek. Um, I used to know it in Hebrew. But the Greek word that's most often translated propitiation in the New Testament is 1 John chapter 2. Oh, it's 1 John 2, 2. 1 John 4, 10. Oh, Romans 3, 25. And there's a place in, uh, in Hebrews. Four times. Christ is our propitiation. It's this. It's an atoning sacrifice. So it's just not a theory. The the cross is not a theory. Now, people have theories on the cross, but the cross itself, what's what's being promoted, the truth promoted by the cross, which is the the, the Passover lamb, this is not 
something which should be given to speculation, though men speculate. It is the, the doctrine, the truth is substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement. The guilty one, us, goes free because the righteous, innocent one takes our place and he takes what we deserve, which is death. That's substitutionary atonement. Uh, if you've seen The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, he holds to an ancient medieval view of the, the sacrifice. Remember, the lion was offered up to what entity? Uh, the, the witch. And so this is, this is, there's nothing new under the sun. It, it is a, the, the notion is that Christ was offered to appease the devil and he was given to the devil. That's a medieval view. This is not true. The offering of the Lord Jesus Christ was not given to the devil. It wasn't the devil's law that was broken. He was, he was an offering to the Father. But is that substitutionary idea. And the doctrinal word is propitiation. And in some of, the, some of the translations of the Bible will translate that word not propitiation, but expiation. Expiation has just the payment of a debt. But propitiation carries the idea of turning away of wrath. Does the God of the Bible, looking at this business of having a substitutionary atoning sacrifice in the Passover lamb, does the God of the Bible have wrath? Yes. What is wrath? Wrath is an expression of God's just anger at the, at the breach of his law. It's a judicial idea. So if someone says, doesn't God have love? It's an interesting question that you just asked me. Because when you go to 1 John chapter 4, in that passage that talks about the propitiation of God, it says, herein is love. So the love of God is that Christ has propitiated our sins for us. He has assuaged or satisfied or turned away or received the wrath of God so we could have the mercy of God. That's love. So the wrath of God and the love of God are not antithetical terms. So when we look at what what is going on there at the Lamb of, of God being crucified, What's going on is that Passover lamb receives God's offended justice. That's wrath. And then to us, it's love, grace, mercy, kindness. Does that make sense? That's what's happening here. And this is all according to the mind of God. So the Passover lamb was teaching and preaching typologically Christ crucified for sinners. And the wages of sin is death. And by the, by the shedding of blood, our sins are remitted. That's what that is teaching. And so when you think, well, how did in the Old Testament, did they know of Christ? They knew of Christ because the Old Testament preached Christ, but they knew less of Christ than we do because we live in the fullness of time. Does that make sense? So sometimes folks think, I wish I could go back in the old epoch. Um, Maybe it might be fun to meet. I mean, we're going to meet Moses soon enough. We're going to meet Abraham soon soon enough, David soon enough. And I'm not even being flip. None of us here knows when we're going to die. But when we die, we will be with saints who are in glory. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, could someone open that door for these folks coming in the side? Is it unlocked? Okay, good. Let's see if it is unlocked. <laughs> Wait a minute. Anyone out of this church? Come on down. What was my what was fa- what fabulous point was I making with that one? Okay, the holy sacrifice. 
um, God has wrath. And the wrath is God's offended justice. It's assuaged in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's love, grace, and mercy to us. That's what's going on here. And so the first section in chapter 9, we're in Numbers chapter 9. The first section deals with the observance of the Passover. Notice in verse 1, it's a very common, it's almost formulaic. Yeah, there is. There, there is a little formula that Moses, who's the writer, the human writer of the book of Numbers, he writes the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. I know unbelievers say he didn't, but we're believers, so whatever God says, he did. And the human author of these books is obviously the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 is the author of all of it. It's all, we believe in the doctrine in this church as Protestants, a plenary inspiration. That means the whole Bible is inspired. There's not any, any bit of it that's not inspired. And since it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's all true. Even the passages which are, is perplexing. Now, the truths that we're looking at among Bible-believing Christians, what I just essentially fleshed out for us, substitutionary atonement, appeasement of wrath and satisfaction of justice, those kind of things, to Bible-believing Christians, this is kind of, this is plain vanilla Christianity, I think. However, if you were not raised a Bible-believing Christian or you are a non-Christian and you came to faith later, when you hear what I just outlined, appeasement of wrath, sinners deserve death, and the only thing that it could assuage is a perfect sac- sacrifice so that we would have life. Right. This is radical. This is utterly radical. And there would, the fleshly pushback, pushback to this is, what kind of God would require his wrath to be appeased by a blood sacrifice in order to accept human beings as clean in his clean presence. What kind of God? I understand. I understand. But look at that first verse. Thus who spoke to Moses? The Lord. If you have been keen to read the book of Numbers along with us as you've been coming out every Sunday evening, this is formulaic. God the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to say this constantly throughout the book in one form or another. And the word of the Lord came to Moses and he said, say this. So God, the Holy Spirit, is keen to tell Moses, who's a mediator, herald, minister, preacher of God, to say, tell the people that what you're telling them is my word, God says, not your word, Uh, per se, although Moses is the writer and the speaker of it, ultimately it's God the Holy Spirit that he gives the inspired word. Why is that significant? Does the natural man believe the doctrine of the Passover lamb dying for sin that we might go free? Does the natural man believe this? No. They think it's barbaric. The natural person, how how or why do they think when they die they're going to go to heaven? What's the answer? When you ask a person, any person, non-Christian, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Do you think you'll see God in a friendly way when you die? And they're going to say what to you? Yes. And what's the reason why they think they're going to see God in heaven? Why? They're good. Thank you very much. They're good. They're good. Most people think that they're good people. Watch Ray Comfort. I've 
told you I love this little guy. I think he's like 75 years old by now. He's an Australian. He is the most winsome little guy you ever want to see in the world. He might be small in stature. He is a giant. I couldn't hold this guy's shoes. The way that he shares the law and gospel is so winsome. When you watch this guy on YouTube, he'll, so how many times have you told a lie? 50 Brazilian. How many times have you stole the 20 Brazilian? And so what do you call liars? What do you call people that thieves? And are you a good person? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. I think. Like, <laughs> are you not listening to the sound coming out of your mouth? But that's everybody. The natural man thinks that they're good before God. And so when you present to them, no, it's the lamb. He's got to die. They are opposed to this. And what God is keen to inspire his man to say is tell the people this is God's word. This is coming from the mind of God. So I did say we are Bible-believing. A conservative Christian or whatever you want to call it is just a Bible-believer. I mean really Bible-believer. We take the Bible to be our, our, our rule for faith, doctrine, and our rule for practice. And so if... Uh, uh, there are sharp unbelievers, and you meet them, and they say, well, this is utterly ridiculous. Why do you believe it? What's the response for why we believe in the Passover lamb, Christ Jesus? The Bible says it. Now, you're going to be called a chimpanzee for believing the Bible, or something like that. You're dullard, you're, you're narrow-minded, it was, you're, you're primitive, you're, not, you're anti-intellectual, yada, 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 yada. Am I, am I not right with that? You're going to be called a fool for Christ's sake which Paul talks about to the Corinthians. And this is what the Whitfield and the Wesleys and all of those guys, they were called fools for Christ's sake, and they wore it as a red badge of courage. I'll be a fool for Christ. So don't think if you believe the Lamb of God, the better part of the, the heathen world is going to think you're enlightened. They are going to think you are anything but enlightened, and they're going to try to shame you out of owning Passover Christ. But it's not because our gray matter is sharper or greater than the unbeliever that we believe this. What's the reason we believe it from the word and they don't, ultimately? You've been born again. You have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of faith. We didn't, you, you can't talk a person in the kingdom. I'm all for sharing. I'm all for proper argumentation and defending the faith. I'm all for that. The Holy Spirit uses that. But ultimately, it's, it's, the, it's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we see the word of God and say, ah, God said the lamb dies and I, go to, I live. Does that make sense? So this is not something that natural man re- likes or, or accepts, but it is according to the mind of God. And when God tells his man, use that formula, and the word of the Lord came. Remember now, the devil can quote the Bible. I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 4. Chapter 3 of Matthew, Jesus is commissioned to enter into public office through his baptism. He enters into the work. Hebrews chapter 4, the Spirit takes him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He begins his work of destroying the kingdoms of Satan, 1 John chapter 3. And the devil comes to him, he's tempting him. He's trying to trip up the second Adam. And how does Christ respond to every single attack of the devil? It is what? Thank you very much. And you know what book of the Bible he quotes exclusively on the three times? Deuteronomy. He quotes from the Old Testament and he quotes from one particular word. He quotes the law. So when someone says, well, I'm a Christian, don't get me wrong, but I'm a New Testament Christian only. I don't read the Old Testament. Well, when you look at how the New Testament writers prove 
the truth of what they were saying, they quoted the Old Testament. So the Old Testament's word of God too. But he uses the word of God. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, we are called as God's creatures, but particularly as his redeemed children, to live on what? Every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Even if we can't fully understand it, even if we can't fully reconcile it. Some folks came to our house this afternoon and with some young couple we were talking later on how to prove the Trinity to an unbeliever. <laughs> you can't prove the Trinity to the unbeliever. I know how I, how I teach the Trinity. The Bible says that their divine names, titles, attributes, works, and worship are ascribed to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Shema, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. That means there's three persons in one Godhead. That's how I understand it but it's the Holy Spirit that convinces. But for us, when we look at this doctrine of the substitutionary atoning lamb, it's because the Bible says it. Uh, Beloved, we live in strange times, exceedingly strange times. I think the times have been strange from Genesis 3, 1 through 8, certainly, but we live in strange times. And Christians debate things which, to to my mind, you think, where's the, like, what are we debating? Like, why is there a debate about whatever it may be, and particularly on, on the gospel? Why is there a debate on what's going on? God said it. Now, I don't mean that we can't ever ent- enter into any kind of discourse, but that, that's what this is here for. God wants his people to live on the word of God, even if we can't, as I say, fully reconcile a number of truths. And then in particular, this expression of God's word came to Moses on the doctrine of, of this substitutionary atoning Passover sacrifice. Um, this is an expression of God's sovereignty. God, when we say sovereignty, it's, it means lordship or mastership, that God is the master, God is the Lord. But we mean Lord, Lord. The way that human beings, our flesh says, okay, you're like, kind of have, can tell me to, what to do on like 80% of things and 20% of things I get to like chime in on. No, no, we, we mean Lord, Lord. We mean sovereign, sovereign. Who helped God create in Genesis 1-1? N- no one. What happened to all the guys when Jesus went to the cross? Where did they go? They ran away. God is utterly sovereign in, in creation. God is utterly sovereign in redemption. Sovereign, sovereign. When he says, this is what you are, you're a sinner, which is what this is teaching. Man is unclean. This is who I am. I'm three times clean. I'm so holy, even holy angels can't even look at me. And no unclean thing can be in my pleasant presence. And the way that I, holy God, have said they can be propitiated, cleansed, made holy, is the blood of my son. I'm sovereign in it. And so, no, and when he says, and, God, and when you look at the Old Testament strictures on the gospel, which is what this is, is very precise. I want the tabernacle to look like this. I want the furniture to look like this. I want the priest to wear this. I want the sacrifices to be this of this species. I want it to be. I want them to be offered by these kind of guys wearing this kind of garment. I mean, every jot and tittle. But our flesh says what regarding God? Even Christians do this. Real Christians. Well, God's going to take any old thing. Does God take any old thing for our salvation? Oh, no. Oh, no, he doesn't. So sometimes the, the, the word Puritan, which is, don't tell anybody, but we're Puritans. 
Like, we don't wear the hats or the buckles on our shoes, but we're Puritans. The Presbyterian Church are the grandchildren of the English Puritans. That's what they are. And the Pur- and Puritan wasn't a good word, just like Methodist wasn't a good word. It's a pejorative. So Puritans, oh yeah, you precisionists, you're so uber strict. And the Puritans would say back to that, we serve a strict God, meaning a pre- strict in the language, precise. Is our God a precise God? Yes, he's a precise God. And so could you say, you know what? I think I'll kill the lamb, but I won't apply the, the blood to my lintel because I don't want to paint it in the morning. Oh, no. And if you said, you know what? I, I don't really like roasted lamb or boiled lamb. I want to cook it this way. Could you do that? No, you couldn't do that. I'll take some and save it for later, or I'll do it this way. I won't dress with my sandals and my girded, and I won't have my staff. I won't do it these other ways, but I'll cut and paste. Would you accept it? He's not going to accept it. What we're looking at here with all of the precision, the exactitudes of everything, is God is saying, I'm a holy God, and I will only be propitiated or appeased by the exact sacrifices. That's why even all of the precision of these things, they're all typological. They're never pointing to the perfect one. That's why there's no other mediator, no other savior, because Christ alone is that perfect, exact pure, holy sacrifice, because our God is a strict, holy, precise God. So it's an expression of God's sovereignty. When God says, thus saith the Lord, or God says to Moses regarding how he'll be worshipped, we mentioned it this morning, um, Presbyterians in particular hold to a doctrine called the, the regulative principle of worship. It's an expression of God's sovereignty in worship, which is what the, the Passover is. It's an expression of worship. And I mentioned it this morning, and I'll just mention it again briefly. Within Protestantism, there's two, there's two principles of worship. We hold to one, the Lutherans hold to another, Anglicans hold to the other one that the Lutherans hold to as well. Ours is called the regulative principle of worship. Theirs is called the normative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship is we believe that God accepts only that which God approves in the, in the Bible. And then the normative principle, and I'm not saying it's They're not Christians. They are Christians. I love them in the Lord, Lutherans and Anglicans. They hold to the normative principle, and they'll say something like this. If it's not directly prohibited, it may be permissible. So it's a little bit broader. And I would argue when God says concerning his worship, thus saith the Lord, it has to be according to the word of God. I would argue that this is an expression of the regulative. Okay. I want to say a few more things about the the nature of the Passover and then the secondary uh, date for the Passover and then maybe say a few things if I have some time at the end and place the Passover into the larger category of the Old Testament feasts, which is what this is. So Passover, secondary date, and then something about the feasts. When we come here, the very first, this is the second Passover that's being practiced by the Israelites. When does the first Passover take place for Israel? When does that occur? Do you remember? Bible quiz. Okay, I know half this, all of the younger people here, they're like, every, the young people here are memorizing the entire Bible. I think this is so awesome, I can't even take it. So, okay, Bible quiz. When was the first uh, uh, Passover celebrated? Hit me, kids. Come on, tell me. Exodus 12. You're exactly right. Awesome. Exodus 12. Now, <laughs> so, 
the children of God celebrate the first Passover meal, they're slaves. But they're, they've only got one more night of slavery to go. How many years was, were the children of Israel slaves? 430. You're exactly right again, guys. So 430, they're just on the cusp of liberation. Exodus 12. This is the first Passover. Now the Lord God said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you because it's the emancipation day. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. Get ready. On the 10th of this month, they're to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for the lamb and he and his nearest neighbor to the house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you shall divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be unblemished, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep of the goats, keep it to the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation is, of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they would take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses on which they set it in, and they're to eat the meat. They're to eat their meat, girded their loins with their sandals and their staff, and not even to put any leaven in the, the bread. And now this is not... This is going to be reenacted regularly, but in this night, there's a real practical purpose. Why are they eating their bread uh, with their backpack? Why are they eating the meal with their backpack on? Because they are getting ready to go. And so we have this. They're, they're killing the lamb. They're applying the lamb of, of God. John Murray has a book, Redemption. Oh, Redemption Accomplished or something like that. And when we talk about salvation, the Passover lamb, he, the, the lamb has been decreed. Then we have the accomplishment of salvation, which is when Christ dies on the cross. Then we have the application of that redemption when we believe. So there are people that say, hi, I'm a Calvinist. They think the, the decree is the gospel. That's a hyper-Calvinist when they believe in eternal justification. And that's wrong. The Calvinists do not believe that. And so Abraham Kuyper believed eternal justification. Kuyper's a genius. I couldn't hold his bags, but I don't believe eternal justification. So it's you're justified from eternity in the eternal justification view. And when you come to believe, you're not actually being justified then. You're just waking up to the fact that you were eternally justified in your consciousness. I, I deny that. I'm with A.W. Pink. The Bible teaches nowhere of a justified unbeliever. So we are, we are, we are, our plan from eternity to be saved by the Lamb. The Lamb dies. That's the accomplishment on the cross, and then we are. It's effectually applied when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when we're justified. Ordinarily, we don't use phrases like "get saved." I don't really make fun of that. What we mean is, is to be converted, to be justified, something which is instantaneous. And I, again, I don't use the language because maybe it's a little bit mechanical, but the Bible does teach the notion of being saved at a moment. That's the application of the blood of the lamb when you first believe. So if the, the lamb is killed because the sinner must die, that which is unclean must be made clean by blood, but it has to be applied. This is where it's not good enough to say, well, my mother and dad are believers. Then your mother and father have been redeemed. They're clean. But merely to have a notional intellectual knowledge of I can pass a Jesus test or a, pass, a, a, a Passover lamb test, that's not good enough. It has to be applied, and it has to be applied personally. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on here. 
And so the theme of the Passover is, is redemption, is salvation. That's what it's teaching. And, um, and, then, and then when we come to chapter 9 of the book of Numbers, this is the second observance of the Passover meal by Israel. We're given the date. They're two years out of slavery. And now here we are two years out of slavery. They've got 30 more year, 38 excuse me, more years in the wilderness. This is the second practice. The first observance of the, the Passover meal, they're slaves. What are they now? They're free men and they're free women, but they're eating it in their estate of humiliation. They're in their pilgrimage. So, the, so we have the Passover lamb is provided when they're slaves, they're set free, and now they're free men and they're, gonna, they're given this Passover lamb. What feast will occur throughout all eternity? The Bible says that the, the redeemed will enjoy a certain kind of feast with our, our, our husband, the marriage feast of the lamb. So all of this is being summed up in Christ, our atoning uh, lamb of um, God. But this is the second observance of it. Now, when you come to say a few things about these unclean people, look at verse 7. These, a group of men come to, to Moses and say, the, now look at what it says. This is, this is kind of funny to me. But this is, this, is, this is pretty, not typical, but I guess it's typical. Let's say there's something clear in the Bible. Like don't, I don't know, don't rob banks. Robbing banks is wrong. <laughs> we don't want to rob banks. And it would be like a person coming to the minister saying, yeah, so what? We've robbed a bank. So how come we can't become a minister because we're bank robbers? Though we are unclean because of a dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord? Well, if they read the book of Leviticus, which of course was, this is, a lot of this is, is basically, you see, reformulated in the book of Leviticus. Since the Bible says we're unclean because of this, why can't we come and offer a sacrifice since the Bible says to stay away. Because the Bible said you're unclean, so stay away. (laughs) What they really want is, is there any other way that God would permit, based on what he's already prohibited, will God make an allowance is what they're asking for. They want what? They want grace. Is there any grace for our breach of the law? Now you say, well, it's, it's, it's not through any fault of their own. They touched a dead person. That misses the point. When you look at those strictures of a woman having her whatever, you say, well, that's not her fault. That's natural. Yes, but that, you're missing the point. It's, it's pointing to in our, in, in our mother's womb, we were conceived in sin. We're, we're natural, unborn unclean sinners that's what the point is and so these other things are just showing magnifying this is who you are and you can't come to god and so these people say is there is there any is there any grace that god will provide for us the the passover lamb is grace and god says i'll give you another day i will give you that's grace that's grace upon grace and then we see grace upon grace upon grace because God says, not only will I give you another day so that if you are unclean, you can, you can practice the Passover, but even if you're on a long journey, Passover's grace, 
The secondary day is a grace for touching a dead person. The secondary day for being on a long journey is grace upon grace upon grace so that people could observe the Passover. But then God says at the end of that little passage, however, if, if it's not for, if you've, it's not, you're not observing the first Passover because you're unclean because you touched a dead person or you're not on a, uh, a journey and you don't practice the Passover meal, then what does he say? You're going to be cut off. You're going to be excommunicated. You're not going to be treated as a Jew that's welcome to the community. You're treated like a Gentile. That's a serious thing. That's a serious thing. Now, excommunication in, in the Protestant day means almost nothing. I mean, I, I don't think it does mean nothing, but practically most Christians think it's nothing. You leave Bob's church and go to Sally's church, and there's no real, there's no teeth to it. But when you're the only game in town, you're it. That's where the word of God is. That's where the sacraments of God are. And you leave it, or you're kicked out of it. What's that? Both the Catholics and the Protestants hold this principle. Outside of the church, there is no what? Salvation. Because the church administers the means of, of grace. The church has the gospel. You th- when you think, well, we don't believe that. Oh, yeah, you do believe it. You don't have, go, go, go to a place that has no Bibles, no Christians, n- n- no, no, no scripture. What do you have there? You have no Christians there. They're not rescued out of it. So the church is the one that's been given the Bible. So it's not the church saving. God uses the church to minister the gospel. Christ saves but to be put out of the visible church, having those things, word and sacrament, is to not have Christ. And so what we see here is God saying, but if you don't observe this, you have no part in me. If someone says, I don't want the Passover blood, you have no part. You're not clean. You're unclean. And the, the last thing I want to say, maybe take five minutes, I think, There are two Hebrew words. So there are five Old Testament feasts. Three are what I would call um, pilgrim feasts. The um, Passover meal was attached to the Feast of Unleavened uh, Bread. And then you have the um, Feast of um, Weeks. And then you have the Feast of Sukkot, which is in uh, gathering. So you have uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you have the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and then you have the, the Feast of Sukkot, or in-gathering. That's where modern Jews will live in little booths. I've mentioned this before. The people behind me, we lived on a hill coming up, and behind the hill, our backyard neighbors, they were Jewish folks. And during this time, the Feast of Sukkot, they would, they would build a little thatched hut, and they'd eat their dinners out there at night. And I always think, boy, that's pretty cool. I'd like to eat outside too, and like in a hut. And I didn't know what they were doing. That's what they're doing. Again, all of the feasts teach um, redemption. But the pilgrim feasts were all male, adult males were required to go. You were required to go. Now, it was, it was permissible for me, females to go. You remember, uh, oh, come on, Johnny. Oh, boy. Elkanah. Was it Elkanah? Was Elkanah the husband in, in, in Hannah? Hannah the wife? I think. So he would take his wife up. To, to the Passover uh, every in the Feast of um, Unleavened Bread. And so, and think of Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph would go and she would go. And so it was required of the males, it was permissible to the females, and so th- they would um, go up. 
in these feasts. In the word for in the in so this feast is this Passover is one of the feasts. And the, there are two Greek words. One is hag. I forget the other one. It begins with M, not M, but you you know what I mean. They both denote joy. So when you think of the Lamb of God, though you want to weep, when you think of the cross, Christ dying for your sins and rising for your justification, you want to cry. I want to cry. Like when you think of Christ die when you think of your own sin causing Christ's death and him dying for your cleansing, for me, my response is I just literally want to start crying. Because like I I'm sorry, Jesus, I did this to you. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this for me. But when we come to the idea of this being put under the with the words of joy, again it's not I I, I don't know, I know people make differences between joy and happy. I'm not smart enough. Um this is the greatest source of our joy that there can be. We're redeemed. Like you could be poor as a church mouse, you could be sick as a dog. If you are a true believer, you are forgiven. You're cleansed. The Passover lamb is slain. It's it's done. I just before tonight, I don't know why I was doing it, I was reading on venial and mortal sins. Catholics believe this. And I'm looking at this I'm like None of it's true. Every sin's mortal. You're never going to cut off the life of Christ in you. You can't sin away the life of Christ. You can't sin away the blood of Christ. The Apostle Peter said, May God damn me to hell. I don't know Jesus, and he's with Jesus. That's this. That's joy. And think of the people. They're thirty. They're going to be thirty-eight years in the wilderness, and I and I I mentioned this morning, every four years. I mean, even not every four years. It's just so politically nutty. Our country is so nutty. I just so I lament. We're just nutty as jaybirds, and it just looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. You turn on the TV, like we went out for an ice cream last night, and you can't even look at the girls walk down the street because you think, oh, if I was your parent, you could you can't wear that, sweetheart. Put some clothes on. Like what's going on? What's going? What's going? And I feel like, like, what is happening here? What's happening here? Beloved, we are forgiven. We're cleansed. We have the good news. We, we have. No, none of this is gonna, is, can, 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 can diminish that at all. So all of the hardship cannot compare to the joy. And the other thing that the, the feasts and the Passover and, and these things... It's, it's corporateness. Three times a year, all of Israel would gather together. This is a family. This is the family of God. This is a family gathering. And I don't know. Maybe I'm getting older. I am getting older and nostalgic. I know, I know I'm not supposed to be nostalgic, but I am. We, when my family did Thanksgivings, it was like 30, 40 people. And you'd have cousin Bobby and cousin Harry, and everybody would, and you'd, every, Aunt Tilly would come, and everyone would come. It was a big time. It was a fun time where your family, your blood kin that you hadn't seen the whole year, boom, they all come together. That's this. Three times a year, the people of God get to have a big old family gathering, and it's all surrounded on, on one truth. We are all saved. And I'm not saying man to man. I understand that. But it's a worship of the Lamb. When you get together and your family, and this is true. Is this not true? Let's say you have a 30-person family shindig. 
there are some pretty, we, we have nutty family members, right? This one, my mother before she died said, John, don't talk politics because one sister was a Hatfield, the other sister was a McCoy, and she didn't want to die watching them fight. So I told my sisters, I said, come on, give Ma a break. Let's just, like, just tell her that we love one another and we get along. Right? But all of these various people having one thing in common, which is their joy, which is with the Lord. So it, it depicts our salvation, our freedom, our acceptance, and it's a unity family meal. And it's a, it's a, it's a time of worship. That, that's what's being taught. That's what's be, being taught. And, in, and ultimately, I, me- I mentioned this morning, we have been born again in Christ to worship. That's what this is for. The Passover lamb has been slain, Christ, to worship. And when we worship, who's going to be on the throne? When we worship the lamb, the lamb will be there. That's what be- was being taught. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.